I often tell my clients that day one, like, look, I'm not going to be the guy that tells you to be more positive. It's better than being negative. But mostly lead athletes don't want to hear that. They don't want a cheerleader. No offense to cheerleaders. They just don't want to hear a cheerleader. They need to know what to do. They need to know how to talk to themselves. And on top of that, they need to surround themselves with other people that also won't talk negative, that will be more task focused. Today, we are joined by Jason Novetsky, also known as Dr. J, who is a sport and performance psychology coach and owner of Champion Mindset Group. Dr. J has a PhD in education, a master's in clinical and school psychology, a bachelor's degree in psychology, and worked as a school psychologist for 25 years before becoming a sport and performance psychology coach, which he's been doing for the past 12 years. Dr. J is also an all-conference D1 pitcher and brings a unique perspective to sports psychology and its effect on the game of golf. How did you get into golf? I know that you played baseball. So Mm -hmm. what led you into golf at all? Well, kind of an emotional story. I got into golf because of my grandfather. So my grandfather uh, came over as an immigrant from Poland. And um, one of the things he took up other than his career was golf. And he took it up really late in life. And my father was more of a baseball player like I ended up being, but uh, he really wanted to pass down that love of golf to somebody in the family. And so he started taking me out to this driving range. I live in Michigan, just north of Detroit. And there was this old driving range just off the freeway. <clears throat> and literally, if you hit balls, you're like hitting almost into the cars on the freeway. So that was always the goal to get it out there as close as you could to that freeway. And I was left handed, still am. And so back then, I mean, I'm 52 years old, so it was hard to find decent left-handed clubs back then. So he cobbled together a mixed match set of old blades and persimmon woods and things like that and made a bag for me. And we would go to the range as much as we possibly could. And once he thought I was ready, he took me out to play with his buddies, like on a nine-hole course on a Sunday morning. And I look forward to doing that like you wouldn't believe me and the old guys out there playing every Sunday morning and, you know, getting frustrated, not knowing where the ball was going half the time, but just, you know, even the best part was just afterward having a sandwich and a pop afterward, you know, with my, with my grandfather. So that was how I got into golf and still love it to this day and took some time off. Like you guys did as well for my baseball career and my professional career, having kids and a family. Uh, But now that I only do sports psychology full time on my own, um, I joined a club and got my handicap down this summer to a 5.8. So I'm pretty happy with that. Very nice. Did you ever play competitively when you were a junior or was it more just out there with your grandfather having fr- having fun with your friends? Yeah, definitely more the latter because um, I was a competitive baseball player. I played division one baseball. So all my real athletic time that I was devoted to was getting better as a pitcher um, working out, things like that, traveling around, playing in tournaments, and then in college, obviously, going to school and playing ball. Tell us a little bit about your competitive baseball career. One of the things that we found is interesting is that people who play other sports have unique perspectives as to how to handle golf or just what golf is. Because, you know, uh, like playing basketball, a lot of things that you do 
are split second decisions and you don't have to think about it as much. You're, there's not as much internal focus going on, whereas golf, you're spending most of the time by yourself. And so it's very easy to get into that. So tell us a little bit about just how, how baseball was for you. And then uh, beyond what you did at baseball or did uh, in baseball, how that has kind of informed your perspective on golf. Well, a couple of things, you know, some were different, some were similar. So obviously baseball is different because it's a team sport. So you're relying on, you know, eight other guys on the field and, and your whole bench. But as a pitcher, it was a little bit similar to golf where you did have time between pitches, like you have time between shots uh, to think. And, and that can be a problem. Um, baseball is a slower game like golf versus basketball or football where everything's fast, fast, fast or hockey. And it taught me a lot. And that's honestly, guys, how I got into the mental game. You know, that was my thing. Um you know, the, the story, the life story there and the pivoting point for me was my freshman year in college, I was terrible. Um, high school baseball was easy for me. I, I skated through it. I was tall, left-handed, threw pretty hard. And I had what I now consider the curse of talent. And I didn't really know how to work hard or what it meant to work hard. And when I got to college as a freshman, I got lit up like a firecracker as a pitcher. And balls are flying out of the yard. I'm leaving games early. I'm getting really frustrated. Like, what the heck is going on here? And I went to my coach and I'm like, you know, do I need to, what do I need to do? Like, I need to throw harder, get stronger, add a new pitch. Am I, am I tipping my pitches? And he said, no. He said, you're fine physically. It's your mental game that's suffering. Now, this was 1988. I didn't even know what he was talking about. Nobody knew what he was talking about. There was no Google to look it up back then. So... Uh, he gave me the old standby book, The Mental Game of Baseball by Harvey Dorfman. And at first, I didn't want to read it because uh, I was admitting something invisible was going on with me that I couldn't do much about, at least I thought. Uh, but after another tough day on the mound, I went out there. I mean, I read, went home and, and read that book, and I looked up three hours later, and I had finished it. Now, as a freshman in college, as you guys probably remember, reading wasn't like our best thing to do. So <laughs> it was a big deal if I sat down and read a book. And... I learned a lot about what was going on inside my head, um, the importance of self-talk and how to manage confidence and how to be more prepared and the importance of routines. And so that taught me a lot about baseball, which then, of course, I use in golf, too. So, you know, just long story, you know, long is uh, that connection is uh, what helped me transition from baseball to golf. So what were some of the misconceptions that you had about um, developing a good mental game before you read that book? And do you see some of those same misconceptions in new students that you have? Yeah, I think the, the misconception a lot of us have, and a lot of people still do, is that mental skills cannot be taught, that you either have it or you don't. And that's what we now call a fixed mindset, right? You've heard that, I'm sure. And I really had to transition to that growth side with before I even knew what it was, the fact that Mental skills can be learned. You know, the old saying that champions are made, not born. And I had to adopt that way of thinking. And by reading that book and learning all these skills and now teaching these skills to my clients and coaching them, helping them through that, and also helping their coaches and their parents understand that, that's been the big, probably one of the biggest misconceptions uh, that I've learned about the mental game. Uh, some other ones are, People always think it's a parent issue. It's not always a parent issue, and you know, especially in youth sports. Um, and that 
young athletes can't learn it. That's another misconception because I work with 10 and 11 year old athletes that pretty precocious little people and they can get it. So um, I think people need to have a more open mind that these are things that are just as important as the physical training, if not more, the higher you go up, as I'm sure we all know now. When it comes to working with younger people as opposed to older people, is there a difference in the methodology that you use in order to keep them engaged or understanding the concepts or is it similar across the board? Uh, no, it's never similar. I, I mean, I'd say for the most part, there's some concepts that are the same, but being a psychologist and then working in education for a long time with young people, you get a knack for speaking what we now call developmentally appropriate. So I've become pretty skilled at rephrasing things into a way that a, a young person can understand it and using different learning modalities, whether it's visual or, or video or sometimes just talking or going on on the course if we're doing golf or, or going to a practice and watching them play. It helps me understand them so I can explain it in their terms. Um, I try to keep my coaching very interactive. So we do a lot of activities together. We create things that they're going to be using when they compete. Uh, I use a whiteboard all the time to show and demonstrate. I might show a video um, of another athlete being interviewed and we break that down. So it's not just a typical you know, therapy kind of setting. Uh, I tell my clients that we're not in therapy, we're in coaching. And so just think of me as another coach on your team. Um, you're not here because something's drastically wrong with you but we're, we're working on coaching. Is there anything along the way that's kind of surprised you about working with people in this area? Like maybe how they've reacted to different things you've told them, changes they've had, or things maybe that some people just innately understood that most don't understand? I would say the thing that surprised me the most is how big the need was. You know, I think I intuitively knew it was important for me and I really loved working on these things. But then when you start working with other athletes and just the engagement that people give you uh, once they realize the importance of it, uh, that that was a big surprise to me and how quickly the practice grew because of that. And I'm not trying to brag or anything, but it grew pretty quick. And it wasn't necessarily just because of what I was saying or doing. I just think there was a, a thirst for more a knowledge. And I wish there was somebody like me around when I would needed it because there was just books and, you know, I couldn't find anybody and I didn't have the resources to pay for anybody either. Um, so I think that's been a big surprise is just the how fast it took off. And I'm, I'm happy and blessed and proud of all of that. What would you say are some of the most important skills that you teach your clients and say, what are maybe some of the uh, first skills that you learn? And then what are some of the skills that you learn once the clients are more refined? Sure. So typically, not always, but typically we start with understanding pressure because usually when an athlete comes, one of the most common inquiries I get is, hey, I can do it in practice, but I can't do it in the game. Like can't take it from the range of the course or I can't take it from the bullpen to the mound, you know? So usually that has to do with pressure. Now I've heard other people on your show talk a little bit about pressure. Um, I learned a lot about the science of pressure from, from various researchers and I subscribe to the theory that pressure is three things. It's you're doing something that is really important to you in that moment, that the outcomes are unknown and you're being judged in that situation. That's like the perfect storm of a pressure situation. And while those three things don't make you feel the pressure, it's how you choose to interpret those three, three things 
that determine how you feel about that situation. Uh, and when an athlete overthinks those things, you know, we call, we have a whole list of mental traps that we go through, like worrying too much about other people, expectations, the past, the future, uh, what your coach is thinking, who's watching, course conditions, all those things are, you know, what we now call the uncontrollables or mental traps. So educating the athlete on what is pressure. So you see it, you understand what you're doing. And what are those mental traps that put you into what we call the threat state? So when you go into that threat state, you know, people can call it fight or flight or freeze or whatever you want to call it, you're feeling threatened or scared in some way. And, you know, without getting too sciencey on us, you know, that's when the amygdala kicks in and starts overproducing all kinds of, you know, nasty neurochemicals that suck up all your oxygen and blood flow, which makes your muscles tight, which freezes up your thought process. And that's when people choke. And so helping people understand that this is normal, but we got to get on the other side of that to what we call the challenge state of mind. When, so then when you learn how to manage the pressure, then you see pressure as a challenge and an opportunity. And you have that attitude of, hey, bring it. I'm, you know, it's still tough, but hey, let's bring it. I'm up for this versus being afraid. And so that's one of the biggest things we get into right away. Even for little kids, just to help them see that. We draw pictures of the brain and, you know, all kinds of stuff just so they can see what's happening. And it's easy for a kid early, especially, you know, there's there's bad information in there. Not bad as a, a derogatory term or pejorative, but more just like wrong information out there. And parents learn it from their parents and it gets passed down. And so uh, parents and some parents who maybe lack some tax say, oh, my kid's a choker. This My kid chokes. And so this kid... It's very easy, I imagine, for them to have that identity or be placed with that identity. It doesn't even have to be a parent. It can be a coach who can place that identity on a kid just because they've had some instances where they don't know how to handle the problem. Or sometimes, you know, there's luck involved with things. Sometimes things just go wrong. What do you do as far as trying to help people with that self-identity to separate themselves from um, being a choker or just identifying maybe with that? Uh, situation in general? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one of the deeper issues that we get into. So, you know, like Cooper says, you know, where do we end up? That's a lot of where we go to. So once we understand pressure, you know, we set some goals together, we work on confidence and things like that and routines, all the things, you know, the tools we need that I'm sure you guys have talked about before, but self-image or identity or self-concept is huge because guys, at the end of the day, you're going to behave and perform based on who you believe you are. And so those beliefs, like you said, they start early on. So, you know, the feedback you get from parents, coaches, the world, you start developing that self-concept. And some of the things you get back are, are really good, but sometimes they're not. And we, we believe it anyway. You, or you might overhear somebody say something about you and you adopt that. Well, that must be true because they're saying it. And, you know, we have that what's commonly known now is that self-fulfilling prophecy where I'm this kind of person or I'm that kind of player or I'm good at this or I'm not good at that. And that's all where your behavior comes from. You use that identity as a filter for all the choices that you're going to make. So what we do is we have a lot of discussion like, hey, who are you now? What do you believe about yourself? And obviously that takes some time for me to build a rapport with somebody to be comfortable to be able to discuss that because sometimes some ugly stuff comes up you know, uh, or bad experiences or even traumas come up that created that identity. So we have to get through that first. And then we start asking, okay, well, who do you want to be? Because we can, to some extent, reprogram 
that identity. And, and that's the hard work that we try to do. So think of it, I haven't think of it like, so I'll use this with kids, like think of it like a brand, you know, and I'll, I'll bring up like various brands like Apple or BMW or Ford or something. And I'll say, you know, what do you think about when you hear that brand? You know, well, BMW, it's fancy luxury car, Fords, you know, trucks or Apples, phones and computers. Well, okay. Each time you hear that, it gives you a feeling, a sense. That's their image. Well, when you hear your name, what do you want to think? And it's like, oh, the light goes on. Okay, now I know what you're talking about. So like, well, who do you want to be? What are you selling out there? And so we start asking, all right, well, give me some adjectives. Give me some character traits. Tell me about your game. Tell me what you're good at already. And we build on that. So we create this whole list of character skills, adjectives, descriptors about themselves, attributes. And we create what we call an identity statement. And it's not too far out there. I'm, you know, I'm not one of those people that says that you can do anything you want, right? You, you know, you can't fly. So, I mean, we have to be realistic, but who do you really want to be? And we create a statement and it, it describes them in various situations. Hey, on the course, off the course, under pressure, uh, as a teammate, in the community, in the classroom. And so once we have this statement, my task for them is to, hey, we got to read this every stinking day. Every day, we got to advertise it to yourself. It's got to be up somewhere. Read it every morning after you get up. Read it before you go to bed. And then it becomes the filter for every decision you make. So you always ask yourself then, well, what would that guy do in this situation? Would he stay out here and practice what needs practicing? Or would he give it up because it's not comfortable right now? Well, if you want to become that guy, you got to suffer through this right now. You got to push through those feelings of being uncomfortable. So... I think that answers the question about, you know, what do we do with identity? But it's, it's hard. It's really hard. But, you know, if you want to be elite, you got to be willing to do the things other people aren't willing to do, even when you don't feel like doing it. And that's the separator. That definitely answers the question. And I think me and Daniel <laughs> can both attest to how hard um, it is to develop that positive self-image, especially in a sport like golf, where it just mm -hmm. continually beats you down. Um, tournament after tournament. Um, yeah. I think it's important that you bring up practicing and, you mm -hmm. know, pushing through those hard practice sessions. Um, I want to go into, you know, how you work with elite players, uh, preparing for a tournament and some of the mm -hmm. things that you tell them to do during their practices to develop a strong mental game. Yeah. So when we're preparing for an event, whether it's a golfer or anybody else, I use a technique, I didn't make up this name, but I use a technique called pre-mortem. You hear doctors talk about post-mortem, but a pre-mortem is anticipating any potential issue. So let's say it's state championship for high school golf. And I'll sit down with my athlete and I'll say, okay, where are we going? What do you expect to see when you get there? How do you think you might feel? Are there anybody that could potentially be there that's a distraction to you. Maybe there's somebody there you don't like very much. Uh, what about the weather? What if things are delayed? So we put up all these potential scenarios because even if they don't happen, if we have a plan to deal with it, if it happens, that gives us a lot of confidence. So that's part of our preparation is the pre-mortem. And we talk about their schedule. What time are they going to get up in the morning? Uh, when are they going to check their bag and fill it up with tees and balls and gloves and check the weather? Everything is taken care of. We call a lot of this a pre-night routine. A 
lot of athletes don't like to think about their event till the day of because uh, it makes them too nervous. And I'm not suggesting they get all hyped up about their event the night before, but there's a checklist of things that we can create together that so when they go to bed that night, they're free from as much as anxiety as possible. And when they wake up the next morning, all they have to focus on is playing their sport, is doing their thing. So we try to take care of some of those little things the night before, the pre-mortem, pre-night checklist. And then we talk about what's the routine going to be when you get to the event, what's your practice or your warm-up going to be like, uh, down to the check-in. Like, hey, what time are you going to get there and check in? Where are you going to go next? Uh, where are you going to get something to eat? Who do you want to talk to? Who do you not want to talk to? Stretching, hitting balls. What's that routine like? Putting, chipping, all those things. And also what to expect when you go up to the first tee. What if you're paired up with people that are annoying, that don't fit your personality type? How are we going to handle that? So we try to accomplish all that as much as possible ahead of time. Now, when it comes to practice leading up to that, I'm a huge believer in what's called deliberate focus practice. And to me, that means that we identify the weakness of our game and we work on that more proportionally than we do our strengths. And everybody says, well, yeah, that just makes sense. And I said, well, but nobody does that. People don't want to work on their weaknesses. They go to the range, they hit a few shots they wanted to work on, and then they go right to their strengths. They start bombing drives or hitting flop shots or something like that. And they never get any better. And they wonder why. Well, if you don't practice your weaknesses, how are you expecting to get better? And the reason people won't practice it is because it's hard and it's uncomfortable. And the biggest one, you don't look good while you're doing it. And everybody's concerned about how they look on the range. So if they got buddies out there or somebody they know, all they're worried about is what other people think. And so they won't work on the shots that need to work on. And additionally, they won't work on it under pressure. I mean, we can never simulate the actual pressure of a tournament, but you can do your best by competing with yourself or competing with others or setting up some minor consequences for yourself. Like, hey, I got to hit so many in a row within 10 feet at 100 yards, or I got to do it again. Or I got to put a few bucks down next to my buddy here and let's have a little chipping contest or let's pick two telephone poles out on the range. Got to be between those. And another thing they don't do, guys, is they don't use their pre-shot routines on the range either. And I'm not saying you got to do it on every shot, but hey, every fifth or sixth shot, step back, practice your process. Go through a, taking a deep breath, um, picking out your target, visualizing the shot, lining yourself up, having that one swing thought. Go through that process because the more you do it, the easier it's going to be when it really counts. So those are a lot of the things that we'll talk about uh, to help athletes prepare, whether it's golf or anything else, uh, are a lot of those pre-night, pre-game, practice routines. Uh, additionally, as you know, I'm sure we work on visualization tasks at home, meditation, concentration drills, all these mental training tactics that we can use to put more tools in the toolbox. That part that you mentioned there, as far as trying to put yourself under pressure, that's something unique that we've heard a lot, um, heard from a lot of our uh, high skill level guests. And that is, mm -hmm. they find, they find ways just naturally to do it. No one, no one has told them, um, mm -hmm. Lainey Fry, she said she breaks her practice up into thirds. And one of those thirds is she imagines her team watching her at SEC champions at the SEC championship. And she has to hit this shot as part of that. So they try to recreate that same thing. Um, yeah. we had a few other guests mention that, and then Dawson Armstrong, 
who plays on Corn Ferry, told us after he played in the Australian Open, he came back and he said to his buddies, guys, we got to play for more money because <laughs> <laughs> what we're playing for is not enough and I do not feel enough pressure. When it comes to putting yourself under pressure, putting, making sure that you feel that strain, what do you try to get your students to do in order to feel that appropriately? Well, um, as I mentioned, we identify the weak spots and we create, we gamify it. So we create little games, little competitions uh, or side bets or consequences. So, you know, like if it's baseball, hey, we, you're trying to hit the ball the other way. So we got to do this so many times or you're going to have to run laps or something like that. So we put some pressure on the kids. If it's golf, you know, it's amazing if you say, okay, here's five balls. Three out of these five need to hit our target or within a certain parameter. You'll see people tighten up when they're running out of balls. That's how we recreate that pressure. Now, it's not the same as, you know, hitting a putt on the 18th green of the last day of a tournament, but it's it's pretty good. So we just try to, like, like maybe that we just create some scenarios, create consequences. Wagering is good, but, you know, I don't try to encourage my young kids to bet, but, you know, I'd say bet for lunch or something like that at your club. But any kind of pressure situation, um, if it's time, Maybe, um, you know, there's a game that involves a clock. Then we put a, a stopwatch on them as well. So, you know, I work with multiple sports, so I'm, I'm trying to give you different examples. But we're always trying to create those kind of consequences. When it comes to working with multi-sport athletes, is there something that they do differently than singular sport athletes do? Yeah, I think it's a little, I don't want to say easier, but it is a touch because when you have a team to rely on, it takes some of that pressure off. Uh, I think athletes that play tennis and golf or gymnastics or other sports where pretty much everything's on them. And also for some of these sports where there's no defense, you can't tackle the, your, your golf, you know, your opponents in golf. Um, so it, it is all on you. So I think, you know, the independent athlete has it a little tougher. And so I think what they need to do is work harder on the mental game, in fact. And I think that they understand that. The older they get, they understand the importance of the mental game as well. Uh, but in terms of what they do that's so different, not so much. I think we just apply uh, the mental tools and the training uh, to different sports. And I think the real coolest thing about what I do is everything I teach my athletes is applicable to life because God knows we need more mental toughness in life than anything else. So um, I think that's why sports in general are just so great because it reveals what we need to work on. So I think a big topic in um, sports psychology and, and golf psychology in particular is, you know, getting in um, the zone, as people call yeah. it. Um, and I think that, you know, every golfer at most levels has experienced this, you know, where you feel like everything's going your way and you just feel mm. super calm. Is there any consistencies in when you have a player play unusually well, do you notice the same things in their preparation and performance or does that vary among players? Yeah. I mean, it does vary. I wish there was a cookie cutter approach to that. I mean, everybody's different. Um, things that I think help facilitate getting in the zone is consistency. I think, you know, having good rhythms, having consistency in your, in your processes and your routines, and the way you do things helps us kind of slip into the zone. Um, 
you know, using visualization can help because that gives you more confidence as well. Uh, being well prepared gives us confidence. But I'm a huge believer in, in routines and a lot of different facets. I know not everybody's about that. I mean, I know you guys had on Kyle with the mental golf types and, and people are different. Um, and I think he even said, like, he still believes everybody needs to have a process. And, and I agree with that. I think some people like a more detailed routine. And some people just like a few simple steps, but it's still at the end of the day, a routine. And I think what happens when athletes don't play well is they give up on it. And that's exactly when you need it, right? That's the time when you really need to dig into your routine to get back into that, you know, that flow state. So there's lots of different ways, uh, I think, but routine is probably the easiest and simplest one for especially golfers to know. I'm a big believer and I'll tell my golfers like, look, as you approach the shot, I want you to imagine you're getting into a bubble and nothing can penetrate it. So it's just you and the ball and the fairway and your clubs and go through your process of selecting your club. You know, you check your wind, your elevation, your lie, your distance, all those things. And, and then you, you finally select it and you commit to it and then go through your pre-shot routine. Now I'm a bigger believer in not just having a physical pre-shot routine, but a mental pre-shot routine. So for example, this is just an example, stand behind the ball, take a nice, slow, deep breath, because that helps us. Remember, pressure sucks up oxygen. So let's get some oxygen flowing. And then consider the situation. What does the shot require? What is it giving us? Respect the trouble, but don't focus on the trouble. And then select your target or your task. What are you trying to accomplish? And then visualize the ball traveling through the air. And I often will say, well, you know, think like a shot tracer. Think, you know, like you see on TV. And then pick your intermediate target, line yourself up. If you have a swing thought or a swing feel, stick with that in your mind and step up and execute that shot. Now, the great thing about the routine, not only does it help you get into the flow, but it also blocks out any distractions. And I'm not one that says, don't think about things because you can't not think, it's about thinking about effective things, not positive things, effective things. So focus on things that will be effective. So routines are very effective and it gets you into that present moment, which as we know is where we all need to be. So doing that repeatedly helps us get into that flow state. Then once the shot's over, I tell my golfers in particular, hey, as soon as that club goes in the bag, bubble pops, it's over. And if you're the kind of personality that likes to talk and be social, then do that. If you're the type of person that likes to stay quiet, then do that too. Whatever works for you, do that. But as you approach your next shot, start that process all over again. And doing that rhythm helps us get into that flow. I want to go back to something that you said that I thought was interesting, where you said that um, when players implement something um, new and they don't play well, they just give up. And I can remember lots of times when coach would tell me something as a junior golfer that um, I should have been doing and I might have tried it once or twice, played bad, you know, gave it up. You know, it was I can remember um, doing that with just simple breathing. I got taught how to breathe the right way to calm myself down. And um, I think I tried it as a junior golfer and I I happened to play bad that day. (laughs) And, uh, so I didn't do it anymore. (laughs) And now, you know, years later when I became a better player, 
Um, I really actually learned how to do that. I practiced it and it really helped me to calm down in pressure situations. How do you um, get your junior golfers to stick to the process and do the things that they need to do um, regardless of the result? Well, first and foremost, as you know, it's hard. (laughs) And here's why it's hard. And this is what I help them understand is we live in a society of instant gratification. So if something doesn't happen quickly or we don't get good at something quickly, we abandon it, right? Uh, This is not an age discrimination thing or a bash on millennials or anything like that. It's nobody's fault. Our society now has access to things much faster than ever before, right? Amazon, Google, all these things. You want something, you order it. It's at your house that night or the next day. Man, when I was a kid, you ordered something. It was six weeks before you saw it. Every time you had to order something, it was like, oh, I don't want to order it. That's going to take forever. So by just of when I grew up, I think my generation learned a little bit more patience. It's not your fault, but this is the society you've grown up in where if it doesn't happen right away, it's bad. So if we don't get something delivered the next day, it's bad. So I'm not going to use that company anymore. Therefore, we generalize that, Cooper, to if I don't learn something quick, I'm bad. And I don't want to be bad. So I'm out. I don't want to dig into this because it didn't work right away. Therefore, I suck at this. So I'm not going to try that because I don't want to look bad. And that's what most people are concerned about, especially young people, because they're developing that ego and that identity. And anything that threatens that, they're out. So it's helping them understand that. It's helping them understand that, hey, these things take time. There's no easy button for this. And we try to keep them accountable. So whether it's through their parents or their coaches or themselves, we have some accountability things that keeping journals, um, writing things down, having to report back on things, grading themselves, lots of different ways that we can be accountable for sticking with the process. I also help them understand that when you don't feel you're making growth, that's exactly when it's cooking. So you start something, you may not notice it change right away. But that's when the biggest changes are taking place. And then maybe a week or two from now, it'll click. And it's like, oh, there it is. But it's been happening all along. So it's that plateau period that you actually have to love. Like, hey, if I'm just flatlining right now, even though I'm doing these drills every day, or I'm breathing every day, or I'm visualizing every day, but I haven't really noticed any change in my scores, it's happening. You just got to stay with it. You have to trust that. And that comes from trusting the people you work with. So if you build that rapport with your coaches or your team and you trust them, then it helps to stay with it. When it comes to teaching golfers and -hmm. working with them, what is their skill level generally? The the ones that you work with, is it higher level, um, like professional, college, what, or does it range? Um, For golf, for me, the clients that I have, because I live in the North. So, you know, a lot of the elite players are down the South and the Mm -hmm. warmer weather is. Um, So I get a lot of junior golfers that are really good. They can hit it a mile. Um, and that's usually the, the inquiry, right? Kid has all the skills, mentally can't handle the pressure, right? So I have a lot of junior golfers that play the AJGA events and, and things like that and the local mini tour kind of thing here for kids. Uh, but man, they can hit it. And a lot of them go on to play college golf. So I'd say I work with a lot of junior golfers that are aspiring to play college. They play a lot of, a lot of tournament golf and then a lot of um, collegiate golfers as well. I've had a few that have turned pro, but you guys know how difficult that road is. Uh, I've had some senior golfers. Uh, there's a 
a, a gentleman in our community that's like a kind of a teaching pro to the celebs around here um, that came to me because he was making a run for the Champions Tour. So we worked together for a long time as well. Um, I've had some mini tour players um, that some of them turned into caddies after a while because they, they actually like what we were talking about, but they just didn't have the game to make it. So they started caddying out there. I have one particular that's been a good, become a good friend. Uh, she is uh, now caddying the LPGA Tour as well. So that's been a lot of fun. But yeah, it's a mix. But in terms of my other sports, um, I work with tons of hockey players, as you can imagine, being in the Detroit area. It's a hotbed for hockey, and we have a USA development team here. So I work with a lot of those young men, um, a lot of the pro hockey players in the community, some of the football guys, not as much basketball, uh, tons of minor league and baseball players, a lot of college baseball players, uh, tennis as well, a lot of junior tennis players. But uh, I love working with them all. They're all fascinating in their own way. No, that's perfect. The reason I asked is because, one, I know juniors – realistically it kind of seems like juniors could use this more than anyone else. Cause by the time you're getting to some of these higher levels, you it's, it naturally filters out some of the people who have uh poor mindsets, not completely, but there's it's survival of the fittest. And considering that's part of the fittest uh, being the fittest, it naturally filters that out. So that, that kind of explains as far as from my perspective, it seems like you're working with a lot of different uh, types of people who have a lot of, the different types of issues that, you know, plague um, amateur golfers who are trying to get better and are tr- just don't know how to do it or are having, as we've talked about, those mental blocks. When it comes to working with those types of players, let's say they prepare for a tournament, they work really hard at getting ready for that tournament, and then they go out and play really well. What usually is the consistent factor with that besides just luck because obviously there's randomness involved what's the is there a consistent factor with that i think it's commitment it's commitment to the process i mean you don't just play really well in a tournament without preparing well without committing to something obviously you have to have physical skill um but it is commitment to the mental process that's my opinion um you know just kind of on the funny side you know you you get that question all the time like how much of this game is mental Right. We've all heard that, you know, 90 percent, whatever it is. And you probably heard this, too. But I always ask my athletes, you know, well, how many hours of physical practice do you do a week? Oh, I'm out the range all day, every day. I'm on the course plan, you know, 20, 25 hours a week. Great. How many hours do you mentally train like serious mental training? And usually the they don't even know what I'm talking about. And I say, well, didn't you just tell me this game is 90 percent mental, but you're not investing the time in it, which could mean writing your goals down, creating a good identity, visualization, attention, deliberate focus, practice, routines, like practicing and working on those things. Big one is self-talk. How we talk to ourselves is incredibly important. Um, There's a whole book written, you know, tons of books written about it. But one of the big ones I loved was um, Trevor Mowad's book, It Takes What It Takes, where he came up with that term neutral thinking. I think that was brilliant. And so I think a lot of these people that, that that play really well have adopted that mindset of, hey, it's not about being positive or negative. It's about focusing on what I need to do. And so they reframe all their thoughts to themselves about focusing on tactical, effective thinking instead of positive or negative. I often tell my clients that day one, like, look, I'm not going to be the guy that tells you to be more positive. 
It's better than being negative. But most elite athletes don't want to hear that. They don't want a cheerleader. No offense to cheerleaders. They just don't want to hear a cheerleader. They need to know what to do. They need to know how to talk to themselves. And on top of that, they need to surround themselves with other people that also won't talk negative, that will be more task focused. Because the content you take in from others or music or TV or anything, I don't care what you think, it does impact you. And so it's like bad food. If you eat junk food, you're going to feel like crap. And if you hang around with people that are always negative, you're going to also feel like crap. So I think the reason why people play well consistently is because they commit to those things consistently. I think that that topic of, um, or that idea of neutral thinking kind of ties into, um, controlling what you can control. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that I started to try when I focused on the things I could control is when I played a lot better. Um, how do you get your players to focus on the things that only the things that they control and how do you, you know, get them to realize what things they can control and what things they cannot control? Yeah. And it, it's probably the most talked about thing in my office and, and the most repeated phrase, control the controllables. And at this point, it's cliche, but still true. So um, I touched on it a, a little bit earlier. Where we, I have this exercise where I have all this, this compiled list over the years of common things that athletes will think about. Um, and we go through this list one by one. You know, do you overthink how big the situation is? Do you overthink other people's expectations of you? Um, who's watching the future, the past, uh, worried about being injured, um, work or school drama, things like that. And we go through this list one by one and they select. Yeah, I overthink that. No, I'm good with that. Yep, yep, yep. And they'll end up, you know, anywhere from maybe eight to 12 things off this list. And I'll say, look, that's your stuff. Those are your mental traps. There might be more that will come up, but basically these are the things that you tend to overthink. Well, you know what? Everybody's got these. So accept it. And so I teach them that it's important to accept the fact that you're still going to have these thoughts. I think the misconception of a lot of athletes have is we have to get rid of those things. We have to abolish it. I never want to think about it again. That's just not going to happen. You're still going to have these thoughts from time to time. And I help them understand what the best athletes do is they recognize it faster than anybody else. They have better awareness and they have better awareness because they've accepted it. And they actually will read that list over and over and over again. So then what does pop in their head, they, ah, there I go. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about something I can't control. And then you assess that. Can I do anything about that right now? Probably not. All right, let's replace that thought with a more productive thought. So we might like for golf. So let's say you've had a couple bad holes. You're thinking about the past. You're worried about the future with your score, how it's going to impact your team or your scholarship or your mom and dad are following you on fairway to fairway. You get all these mental traps all around you. Notice it. And we have to have a pre-planned replacement thought. So I said, let's come up with some performance statements. What are some things you need to be doing out there either on the course or with your swing that if you do those things gives you the best chance of playing well? So it might be, all right, when I'm playing well, I stick to my routine, I have balance, and I always finish my shot. Simple, not too technical, not getting into arm angles and you know attack planes and all those kind of things. I'm just focused on simple, basic things that they can remember. And we rehearse those things, and we start working on it. And we go out and play, or they go out and play and report back, hey, what were you thinking about out there? 
Did you notice any of your mental traps? Were you able to replace them with more effective or tactical thoughts? So it's a process, Cooper, that we just keep going over and over. And it's a skill. Like I said earlier, it can be learned, but it takes hard work and practice. When it, when it comes to that hard work and practice, students that end up deciding not to put in that hard work and practice, why do they normally decide that? Besides, besides just, oh, it didn't work that one time, just like Cooper had mentioned. It could be a number of reasons, Daniel. I mean, it could be a family issue. It could be that they just realize that they don't have the love and passion for the sport that they thought they did, that maybe they got into it for the wrong reasons that, um, you know, they thought it'd be really cool to play college golf. And then they realize how difficult it is and they're not willing to sacrifice because, you know, I tell them, look, within reason, you can do anything you want, but you can't do everything you want. And so you have to be willing to give up some things that, you know, are going to be painful, you know, that are going to hurt when you can't make a birthday party or go to uh, your high school prom because you've got to be at this tournament where this coach is recruiting you at. And so there are some certain sacrifices that, and it's fine that certain people just aren't willing to give up on. It doesn't mean as much to them maybe as they thought it did, or as you know, the cliche is maybe they're doing it for the wrong reasons or the wrong person. Maybe they're trying to make somebody happy or proud in their life, but it's not for them. And so that's, those are tough conversations. And, and sometimes a person will come into my office and the reason they come is to determine if they should quit or not. And so we, we work through that and think about the pros and cons. And I think the biggest thing that I talk about is regrets. Is it at least worth it to keep going to make sure you've tried it all so at least you can sleep at night? Or someday you can look your own child in the eye and say, hey, I took it as far as I possibly could. And I'm good with that versus giving up on it too quick and never knowing for sure. So I, I have these tough, deep conversations with athletes, even young athletes, to help them make sure they're making a good quality decision and they don't give up on things too quickly. It's interesting you say that as far as regrets go for, for two reasons. One, there's friends of ours that have contemplated over the course of time, like, I'm I'm done playing, like, after this year, it's too much or... I might even stop now. And obviously that's something that Cooper decided to do. And I think the great way that Cooper went about it was he's like, you know, I realize this is not something that I want to do. Like what, what does the success look like here? And he looked at what success looked like. And he was like, honestly, I don't, that doesn't fit what I want with my life. And other friends Mm -hmm. have been out there and um, it's very easy to get caught in moments of despair. And then uh, most of them, I think have continued on and very few have, regrets. And it's interesting, again, back to the that statement regarding regrets and helping other people. I don't know if you remember the book, Burn Your Goals by Joshua and Medcalf and Jamie Gilbert. It probably came out in 2015. And um, Joshua Medcalf went on to write more and more books. Yeah, um, I've heard of his name. Yeah. And that one, I think was one of the first ones they came out with. And they had clutch performance and uh, Jamie ended up not going on to write the rest of the books with him. And part of the reason why is, and I, I and I uh, had talked with Jamie, he came to school and his background was, you know, he played soccer in college and then decided, played a little bit professionally and then decided to focus on this. And then I talked with him probably like a year or two ago and asked, Hey, like, what are you up to now? And he was back out there playing like 
minor league soccer essentially because he he said, you know, I don't want to have to I want my kid to do what they want to do and if I didn't if I didn't go out there and give it my best then it's really hard to look my kid in the eye and say, you know, you know what, you should you should do what I wasn't able to do. When it comes to those types of regrets, how do people manage it? How do you help people manage it after maybe they've already given up? Yeah, well, I mean, not much we can do and go back. We can't <laughs> change what you already did. So we do our best to look at what did you get out of it? What did you learn from it that maybe made you a better person? And even though maybe you you gave up three feet from gold, um, now that's a life lesson that you can teach your children. So you, you just provided a really good non-example <laughs> of what to do in that situation. Uh, but also show them that, hey, life worked out. I'm still okay. It's not the end of the world. You know, everybody has some regrets at some point in their life. Um, it wasn't a life or death experience. Um, so I'm going to take what I learned. I'm going to apply it to other things. And if this kind of uh, adversity comes up in my face again, I was I felt this before. And now maybe I might choose a different path. Um, in regards to like deciding that, though, deciding to quit something, I don't want to say quits, like it's a bad thing, just deciding to move on is... Something Nastia Lukin said once, she's a gymnast, a USA gymnast, and she was the one that was famous. She, she fell flat on her face, right? Literally on her face. And growing up, she wanted to quit a lot. It was really tough. Gymnastics is hard. And I think her family was like her trainers and things like that. She came home one day after a bad day and she's like, I'm, it, I'm, I'm done, I'm quitting. And her mom said to her, and I'll never forget this. She said, that's fine. You can quit, but not today. Never quit on a bad day. You go back there, and after you've had a couple successful days at the gym, and if you still want to quit, I'll support you. But never quit, any, like you said, in an emotional situation. So if you have a bad day at the course and you're like, I'm done, don't do it. Stick it out. Go out there because you know what? You're going to end up going. You're going to shoot some good scores. And if you still want to quit, then quit. But you, you leave on a high note. It's like George and Seinfeld. I'm out on a good note. <laughs> Always leave on a high note. I love that. I, I appreciate it. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. The yeah. last question we ask every guest is if, uh -oh. if you could go back, <laughs> if you go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself just one thing, what would it be? Oh boy. And in Jeez. your case, since you also work with juniors, if you could just tell them only yeah. one thing, what would that be? You know, we talked about it, but I would say better practice deliberate practice. And I guess more importantly, that would be enjoy the ride. Uh, because I think as, as your sport gets serious, it becomes more of a job. And let's not forget the reason we started and what we love about it. And, and just real quick, like I, I will ask those questions. Tell me what you love about your sport. And I'm not talking about winning. I'm talking about the sights, the sounds, the smells, the relationships, the memories. Those are the things that we need to keep near and dear to our heart because there's going to be tough days. And if you forget why you're doing it and what you love about it and what you get out of it, it's going to be really hard. So remember what you love about it. Beautiful. We appreciate that. And especially like it's especially you work with juniors. If I'm a junior out there and I'm like, you know, I want to work with Dr. J, I want to at least like talk to him. It sounds like you might be able to work with people remotely. Is that something that you yeah. do? 
hundred percent. Yeah. I'd say 40% of my clients are on remote calls now, especially, you know, even as my athletes get older and they travel. So hundred percent. And what, what sort of schedule and consistency does that look like for you? If I'm someone out there who's interested? Yeah, it's different. It's like I said, it's not therapy. So we're not meeting at one o'clock every Tuesday, you know, things like that. It's a coaching approach. So I do see certain athletes weekly or biweekly, but it could be every couple of weeks. It could be once a month. Um, I like to see new clients a little bit more f- frequently just to build the momentum and the skill set. And then once they get going, I like them to go out there and play and then come back and let's talk about it and let's keep building. So it's it's the, the cadence of it depends on the athlete and where we are in that process. Well, that's perfect. If I'm out there interested and want to A, learn about that or B, find you on social media, learn more from you or ask you any questions, how can I do that? Yeah. So the name of my my company is called Champion Mindset Group. Uh, we're here in Birmingham, Michigan. The website is champmindset.com. Um, you could also go on social media and find Champ Mindset Group or Champion Mindset Group. Uh, I also have a Twitter handle, JS Novetsky PhD. Um, but if you just Google Champion Mindset Group and Jason Novetsky, um, you'll find me. Um, my, my number, my email is all out there, or you can do an inquiry on the website. I'm pretty accessible on Twitter and Instagram and uh, Facebook page. So if you, if you just Google it, you'll find me. Thanks for joining us today. Please do us a big favor and like and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts so we can help others learn how to play better tournament golf. You can find us online at thetournamentcode.com, on Instagram at thetournamentcode, and on Twitter at Tournament Code. As always, feel free to reach out to us at those places or email us at daniel at thetournamentcode.com and cooper at thetournamentcode.com. We hope you join us as we continue to dive deeper in what it takes to play elite tournament golf.